This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number 24. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, where we focus on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. Wherever you are, however you listen, thank you for spending some of your time with me today. One of the real joys of doing this show is being able to bring you a variety of perspectives and different approaches for going about the business of being an author. If you listen to the so-called experts, you might get a sense that there's only one way to succeed as an author. But if you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of today's guest, Jane Friedman's blog, you know that's not true. Jane began posting online advice and information for writers when she was the publisher and editorial director of Writer's Digest in 2008. While in that position, she started a blog called There Are No Rules. And when she left Writer's Digest, she moved her online writing to her own site, janefriedman.com which is one of the best and most informative sites for writers on the web today. One of the reasons Jane's site is so valuable for writers is that no-rules approach she takes to the thoughtful advice she offers. She believes the path can be, and really should be, different, depending on the author. As an example, here are Jane's thoughts on the most important thing an author should consider about the oft-discussed author platform. I think the first and most important thing every author needs to consider is how to reduce their anxiety surrounding the issue. Because there is like just a lot of stress and expectation and and so much conflicting advice surrounding it that I think by the time I usually meet authors who have heard about platform, they like they they have so many negative ideas associated with it. So part of what I like to do is try and just say, look, you don't have to really do anything because sometimes doing all this stuff results in nothing, which is isn't meant to be like depressing, but if you're like, if you're just running faster on the hamster wheel, trying to do what all of the experts say, you're actually, it's, it leads to a lot of thoughtless and meaningless activity. That's just a hint of the thoughtful advice Jane shares in this interview, where we cover topics like whether or not authors should be blogging, finding the right publication path for your book and some of the many opportunities and challenges authors are faced with today. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Did you know that Audible released the world's first commercially available portable digital audio player in 1997? They've been in the business of making books easy to consume since 1995, and they now have over 150,000 professionally produced audiobooks, including hundreds from guests of this show. If you sign up for a no-obligation 30-day free trial, you can select any book in their library and listen to it for free. Just go to www.audibletrial.com authorbiz or go to the AuthorBiz website and click on the Audible trial link in the show notes. Now let's get on with the interview. My guest today is Jane Friedman. She's an author, a speaker, the co-founder of Scratch Magazine, and a professor of publishing and digital media at the University of Virginia. Jane, welcome to the Author Biz. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Earlier this month, you published 
Publishing 101, a first-time author's guide to getting published, marketing, and promoting your book, and building a successful career. That's a collection of blog posts that you've been that you've written over the past several years. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you decide to put all, put the collection into the form of a book? Well, because some people, rather than clicking through dozens or hundreds of blog posts, would rather have a more cohesive and guided experience. And also with blog posts, I mean that's a very particular format that serves a very particular type of reader. And so it started to make sense, especially as I had built up basically a a quarter of a million words, (laughs) (laughs) that I needed to put together something very manageable for people who were totally new to publishing and that they felt like, okay, if they read this guide from beginning to end, they would have a grasp on what to do next and what would be expected of them. And I think sometimes that's difficult to do with, you know, a series of hundreds of blog posts, even if it's laid out for you. Um, it's not always an entirely pleasant experience. Well, your book is. I, I have I've read it, and it, it, it really flowed beautifully. And if I hadn't read in the beginning, I think I probably would have noticed from all the bulleted text and numbered mm. headings and things like that, I probably would have noticed. But it didn't feel like a collection of blog posts. It felt like uh, a, a cohesive book. Right. Thank you. That's That was my goal. And... Yeah. Yeah, but there's definitely some of the bloggy elements in there, like you mentioned, the the bullets and lots of heads. And so at the very least, I hope it makes it a quick read. Yes. Now, one of the – you've been blogging, as we mentioned, for a long time. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in right now and that is really – coming up a lot is the idea of blogging if you're an author. And it's obviously this started some time ago, but what so many authors do is they blog about writing. Mm. And um, while there are lots of really good blogs about writing, I'm not sure that there's a need for another good blog about writing. So you you wrote a post, I think, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago uh, on, the, on the topic of what authors should do if they decided to blog. Let's talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit. First off, should authors blog, in your opinion? I think the large majority of authors shouldn't blog. And this is just after years of witnessing authors try it. And they don't typically have the patience or really, frankly, the interest in pursuing that format. I mean, I treat the blog format as an art form in and of itself. And I think many book authors are focused, rightly so, on producing their books, not on producing blog posts. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't find that just because you like to write books or write stories automatically means you're going to be a great blogger or that blogging will somehow be a great marketing and promotion tool. So I tend to be a little more on the discouraging side because um, if I can't discourage you from blogging, then maybe there's a chance (laughs) if you still pursue it, you'll like be determined enough and you're interested enough like that you're going to do it anyway. That's like, for me, that's a good sign (laughs) that discouragement doesn't stop you. Now, when you when you started blogging, you were a four or five time a week blogger, I think I read. Is that a true statement? Mm -hmm. That's true. And you also started under a different URL or a different domain. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at one point, you changed. I spoke with an author last week uh, who, had, who had blogged for years under a different title for her blog and then decided to combine them. And that, that actually makes a lot of sense if, you're, if you've made the decision to blog and if you have a history of blogging. Um, why did you decide to combine the two, your, your personal site and your, and your blog? 
Well, when I originally started, I was the publisher of Writer's Digest, which is a pretty significant brand and site. And so my blog was part of that community and part of that brand. And by the time, uh, let's see, it would have been, by the time the blog was picking up steam, which was about two to three years in, uh, I had moved on from my employment at Writer's Digest and Mm -hmm. I was teaching full time. And I, I had always had my own site with kind of a very informal blog. It wasn't for writers. It was more like reading notes and things. And so it just started to make more and more sense not to really be giving, you know, basically my former employer the (laughs) continuing content because I wasn't getting paid, but Mm -hmm. I was still doing it um, to not continue to give them that and to move it over to my own site. Uh, The big drawback of that, of course, is that I don't get the marketing and promotion engine of Writer's Digest behind my posts. But on the other hand, I'm more I, I've, I have better control and insight into what's happening and it's better for building my own platform. But I, I would highly recommend that people not go through that kind of transition because yep. it's, it's hard to get people to move from one site to another. You just lose the large majority of your traffic. And that's got to be startling. You mentioned something that's that's critical. The idea that you started the blog and you were two or three years into it and it started to get some traction. I, <laughs> yes. I think there are a lot of people that get into blogging and they're a little surprised when their first blog post or, or even their, you know, go so deep into it that the fourth blog post doesn't uh, create tremendous uh, excitement in the in the yeah. blogosphere. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Two or three years. Yeah. And that yeah. was that was when there weren't eight gazillion blogs that are that were being actively published. Exactly, and I mean, part of it was just because I wasn't, frankly, I wasn't that good at blogging the first year or two that I did it. I didn't really study up on it, and I kind of was self-taught. And then I started reading and modeling myself on some good practices, and so a lot of people just they don't have that kind of patience and they're, they're also, they also don't want to change what they're doing. Cause you do have to make some compromises if you want your content to be shared or be, sh- or to be spread online. You have to write better headlines. You have to hook people very quickly. You have to use images. And some people just don't want to get involved in that level of online marketing and optimization. Now, another thing that you do that's a little bit unusual in the blogging world is, is you write some fairly long posts. Yes, I do. And those are by far the, the best traffic uh, posts, and the, the long ones. Usually when I hit 2,000, 3,000 words, mm-hmm. they have real staying power because I choose to write on topics that I would call evergreen or they're timeless. Mm-hmm. And so it really works for me and for my audience because people are typically looking for something in-depth and not slight. Like they don't want to have to like go to six different sources to get the information about like how to get published. If they can find one post that's long, that does the job. Great. Um, so yeah, that really works for me. And I try not to do the short little 500 word posts that I think a lot of people think that's what a blog is, but right. um, that's not my view at all. Now you, you wrote a post not that long ago. Uh, no, Pat Flynn would call it an epic post. One that um, mm-hmm. is, is like you said, is evergreen. It's going to be generating traffic for years. And Facebook for Authors, the getting started guide. I mean, that's a fabulous head, headline. And anyone that's an author and that's involved in Facebook that's not having tremendous success could learn something from that article. Um, when, when you wrote the article, uh, aside from the fact that you wanted to put this information out there, um, 
how much thought goes into the headline? How much thought goes mm-hmm. into, as, as you mentioned, uh, hooking people early on that obviously the headline is, is really going to hook people with this particular post, but how much thought goes into that before the writing actually begins? It depends on the post, but I definitely go through a series of potential headlines. And I also kind of look at what else is out there and how those things are titled. And like, for instance, I would definitely go to Google and search for Facebook for authors to see what's coming up and what what keywords people are using to describe the problem they're having when they're mm-hmm. thinking about how to use Facebook. So I try to gear it in like very common language, but also include something that indicates the nature of the post. So for in this case, um, I'm trying to indicate that this is, you know, this is for someone who's still a little bit tentative or confused or needs guidance on how to begin using Facebook, uh, you know, for their author platform or for marketing purposes. Okay, author platforms. Let's let's transition quickly since you mentioned that in, into author platforms. There there is a standard rule of thumb for author platforms, but as you you put so beautifully in your book, um, there are no rules, but you teach the rules. <laughs> I, I, love, I love that line. It's one of the highlights, one of the Kindle highlights, and I'm sure you'll get a lot of them of, of that particular one. But um, there are rules to build it seemingly rules to building a platform and you you sort of preach against those rules you you believe in a philosophy of just focusing on what you do well and not necessarily trying to do all of these things to build this all encompassing writing or author's platform what what should an author do to build his or her platform I think the first and most important thing every author needs to consider is how to reduce their anxiety surrounding the (laughs) issue. Because there is like just a lot of stress and expectation and and so much conflicting advice surrounding it that I think by the time I usually meet authors who have heard about platform, they like they they have so many negative ideas associated with it. So part of what I like to do is try and just say, look, you don't have to really do anything because sometimes doing all this stuff results in nothing, which is isn't meant to be like depressing, but if you're like, if you're just running faster on the hamster wheel, trying to do what all of the experts say, you're actually, it's, it leads to a lot of thoughtless and meaningless activity. And so I try to back way up and look at, okay, who are your readers and what do they enjoy and what actually do you enjoy doing? I mean, I think a lot of the long-term growth that happens is from being very consistent and very patient, as we've kind of already discussed. Mm -hmm. And so you have to stick with some activities for a really long time before you start to see that payoff. And you also have to think about doing activities that let your voice come through rather than some kind of marketing voice. Um, And I think a lot of authors struggle with what that looks like. And so... But over time, you, you practice and you kind of find the persona or the voice that you're going to use, and you can keep uh, you can keep at it consistently in a way that leads to the results that you want. Rather than trying a lot of different things, one after another, month mm-hmm. after month, you're switching strategies, and how? Of course, it's not working because you people have no idea what your message is. You just keep kind of switching direction. I read something that you wrote the other day um, about. Facebook and platform building for fiction authors and the need or lack thereof to build that platform before your 
Ready to Publish, uh, your mm-hmm. first work of fiction, because that's yeah. something that's sort of common knowledge and something that, as you said earlier, all the experts say is you need to build that platform up first <laughs> before you publish anything. But as you put mm-hmm. in your post, it, you don't really have anything to tell them. You, right. They're not one of your readers. <laughs> they, they, right. You haven't published anything. <laughs> Precisely, which gets you, you've you've nailed one of the key points here, which is all of the platform building kind of starts with the stuff that you're writing or the Mm -hmm. work that you're creating and what people are reading. So for a fiction writer, it all starts with that first novel or short story or whatever it happens to be. And if you're trying to build a readership around work that doesn't exist, yeah, yeah, it's going to be hard and confusing and frustrating. So like focus on the work, produce the body of work. And I, especially early career fiction writers, those who are unpublished, you may not even quite understand yet what the qualities of your work are going to be. Um, it's a very hard question to answer when you don't yet have work or someone to respond to the work. Right, yet we're out there building platforms to support this work that we're, we're, still, we're still writing. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it is a, a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, but you're one of the few people that suggests that we, we don't get all that involved in it and not worry about yeah. it that much. I mean, that's not to say that you can't do a lot of valuable things while you're working on your story or your manuscript. I mean, there are obviously lots of wonderful writing communities and critique groups and other things that bring you into contact with publishing professionals. So all of that activity is great as long as you're you're not feeling like it has to achieve something in regards to your platform. I think it's good for the support and to get familiar with the dynamics of how this whole system works. That's all good, but I wouldn't like expect it to like turn into something beyond what it is. <laughs> Are there certain things that we should do ahead of time? Things like getting a domain and putting a website up and using MailChimp or something that's free or inexpensive to begin collecting names? Are there certain things, an order of things that you suggest that people always do, or is it always just kind of depend on the person? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of things are basically, you know, it depends on your situation. So I do think though, having benefited so much from having my own website Mm -hmm. that, and also knowing how, how steep the learning curve can be for people who are not technically inclined. I don't think it's really ever too early to kind of buy your domain name for the author name you intend to publish under just to have it, um, to start playing around with tools, not that you have to make your site public or market your site, but start you know, putting together the skeleton of what your site might be like. And this is really because you don't want to start thinking about building a website like the day your book releases, that's a huge mistake. Um, (laughs) You want to have it in place, you know, or start to think about getting it in place once you have a publishing contract or once you start deciding you're going to get serious about self-publishing. So that's one area where like having the site in place, like it just starts to build some momentum that's really helpful down the line. And if we, and then we can also get into questions of like search engine optimization and starting to like connect your name with certain types of work and keywords, all that's really good stuff um, to have working for you. But by the time your book is released, um, but you know, if it stresses you out, my general philosophy is just step away and go back to focusing on your work and then approach it when you feel like you're better equipped. 
my experience in putting together websites, and I, I like WordPress, and I know that you do as well, uh, my experience has always been um, that it's a building block type process where you build, you first build the, the foundation and then you begin adding some content and then you think, oh, and then you, you start thinking about SEO and things like mm-hmm. that. So exactly. when, you, when you talk about it all at one time, it, it can seem overwhelming mm-hmm. and uh, too much. But uh, for many people, if, if, if you can use Facebook or you can use some of these other tools, you could probably put together a WordPress website. It's it's not mm-hmm. the most difficult thing in the world, and there are plugins and there are things that you can do to make your site look very attractive. There are some very nice free um, sites. The the author biz is is hosted on the Hemingway, I think it's Hemingway Revised yeah. or something like that yeah. platform that that's totally free. You mentioned that in a blog post uh, a couple weeks ago. It's a beautiful looking plat uh, it's a theme, easy mm-hmm. to use. Um, and then over time, you decide to upgrade your theme. You upgraded your theme over uh, the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you're absolutely right. Your website never kind of enters into the world fully finished and then you never touch it again. It's always a building block process. And, you know, just putting one or two blocks in place at a time as you get comfortable is it just helps make the whole experience a little more pleasant because you're not in a rush to get everything finished. Yes, and the longer your site's been out there and the longer your name is in the domain and the longer you have a few pieces of information out there, the more likely Google's going to notice you when it's actually time to start talking about your book. Absolutely. Challenges and opportunities for authors. Let's let's talk for a little bit about this. You work with both traditionally published authors and authors that might want to go the self-published route. What what do you see as the biggest challenge for each group today? I think with self-published authors, usually the challenge is if you've never before been published, traditionally published, then there's just a whole world of experience and insight that you're not going to get because you won't be working with the machine that is a traditional publisher. And while there are a lot of criticisms, a lot of criticisms of that machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it still works pretty well. Um, and you have a lot of resources like your editor and your publicist and the marketers and the sales team. Like you've got this system that's working on your book's behalf. So if you if you don't have that and you're doing it totally alone, that can that can feel very lonely. And you also it's it's incumbent upon you to find the right professionals to help you. Or you can just do, do it totally solo. Um, but there's still this enormous learning curve of understanding um, not just the technical aspects of the publishing process, but then of course how you can effectively market and promote a work and, and package it. There are so many different moving parts. It's, it is it is incredible. It can be overwhelming, or it is over. I shouldn't say can be. It is overwhelming unless yeah. you've been self-publishing for for quite a while. If you're Russell Blake or someone like that, uh, you've got a process in place to to crank your books out. But the, yeah. the rest of us don't have that process. And finding the editors, finding proofreaders, finding cover designers, learning how to take a word document and turn it into something else. It's, it's all right. complicated. And then you have the, the challenge of actually writing the book. Right, right. And a lot has been made about how easy it is to self-publish. And I totally agree. It's very easy. But of course, the question is, how well are you going to execute it um, after you press the upload button? So yeah, it's sometimes I think the barriers have come down so low that people don't recognize a lot of the sophistication that 
typically goes into a very successful book that sells the number of copies that you probably want to sell. Um, so the challenge on the traditional publishing side is, you know, a lot of a lot of your rights are going to be greatly restricted. There's a lot you're not going to be able to do to market and promote the same way that a self-published author would be able to market and promote. Obviously, you're not making as much money depending on uh, <laughs> depending on what you could do on your own versus what the publisher can do for you. That's mm-hmm. you're, you're going to have to balance that, like, um, and that this is where we get the whole hybrid author concept where people choose to self-publish some projects, then they traditionally publish others based on where they think their strengths best lie. So I think it is possible to kind of like choose on a book by book basis where you think the project belongs. But of course you have to be pretty along, pretty far along in your career before you can start, you know, playing both sides of the right the fence. Yes, it's easy to decide as someone who hasn't published anything that you'd like to be a hybrid author. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The challenge is finding a publisher. Um, okay, let's let's talk for a little bit about about finding a, a publisher. There are the big New York publishers that we all want to have enormous contracts with. There are smaller publishers. There are little niche publishers. How do you advise people to look at the publishing landscape when it's when they have a manuscript, a manuscript that's actually ready. Well, the first thing you have to do is really be honest, if possible, about the commercial potential for the work. So, you know, in terms of New York publishing, commercial potential lies in genre fiction like romance, mystery, thriller, um, science fiction, and fantasy. Also, nonfiction books with a really strong hooker concept, an author who comes with a platform, meaning you can reach the target audience on your own without a publisher's help. So you have to really be firing on all cylinders, have great writing, um, great platform for nonfiction, and it has to be timed right, meaning like the market has to, has to be excited about your work because it, there's so many people in the chain who need to, to, to agree that, yes, your work deserves visibility, um, not just the publisher, well, even going back further, not just the agent, not just the publisher, which includes the sales and marketing team, but then the bookstores and how they place their orders and then the review outlets. So there's all of these people who kind of have to get behind the book. And that's why, you know, it's just the barriers are high. And I think yes. we, all, we all know that. Um, so there, but there are definitely other publishers outside of New York, um, independent presses, regional presses, university presses, literary presses that just have, a, a different set of considerations and requirements. They may not need to sell 10 to 20,000 copies to make a book worthwhile. And they may have a very dedicated, loyal audience. I'm thinking in particular of Grey Wolf, which produces literary fiction, poetry, and essays. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's hard to categorize them as like a small publisher. Like they're kind of huge by a lot of standards, but they're not in New York and, um, but they're, they're widely distributed and then they cater to a very, um, particular type of audience. So uh, I think some people who uh, sometimes their work just has very niche appeal and it doesn't really do you any good to pitch a very specialized work to a New York house, just because you want that imprimatur, that prestige, you should Mm -hmm. be focused on the press. That's going to understand that niche and is going to be able to get your book in front of the right audience. Now, at at a certain level, if if you want to go through New York, I'm, I'm assuming you're best served having an agent. 
Mm-hmm. But some smaller presses I know will accept submissions that directly from authors or if you meet someone at a conference or something like that, you might have a greater likelihood of being able to submit and have your work considered. Yeah, I I would say if you're going down the New York path, it's it's almost a requirement. You'll you're going to need an agent cuz the New York houses won't accept your material without an agent. And I and a lot of the other presses are very friendly towards submissions coming directly from authors, but it, but sometimes they have narrow submission windows or they've become overwhelmed with submissions and sometimes they move to only agented submissions. Mm -hmm. So you just have to read the submission guidelines carefully because there's not really a good general rule of thumb, but definitely for like university presses and regional presses, the ones that are probably only paying advances like in the low four figures, um, they don't interact much with agents because they don't pay enough for right. an agent to be right. interested. So you're usually on your own for those types of presses. And when you say the low four figures, and in a lot of cases, it's at the very minimum of the low four, th- four yes. figures, it's $1,000. Yes, exactly. Uh, so uh, from an expectation standpoint, I, I, I suspect sometimes that's a surprise to people. Mm-hmm. I, it probably is. But that's, you know, even the New York publishers don't always pay that much. I mean, it's not unusual for a traditional publisher to pay five to $10,000 for an advance. Um, if it's just what they would call a quiet book or, you know, a certain type, category of book where they're just not going to make a big risk. All right, let's, let's talk about a different category of author. Let's talk about an author who has had some success. Uh, from a New York publisher, and uh, maybe they had a big book uh, where the publishing machine, the marketing machine, was behind them, and the second book tailed off a little bit, then the third book tailed off a little bit, and they're falling into the mid-list category. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, For those people, there's a sense of concern about what the future holds. Um, What kind of advice would you have for them? There's a lot of discussion around this issue that the midlist the midlist author is dying. Although I think that prediction has been made since maybe the seventies <laughs> or the eighties. Um, but the thing is, right now it's more feasible than ever for exactly the type of author you describe to go and self-publish very successfully, because while their audience may not be big enough to to merit the publishers the big publishers' attention any longer, it's really significant enough for a single author to make a career out of through self-publishing when you're taking, let's say the 70% royalty. Right. Um, so, and it works even better, of course, if that, uh, that middleist author has made some efforts to connect directly with their readership through their website or through social media, email newsletters, because then if you, if you already kind of have this track record, you already understand the publishing process, you have a connection with your readers, self-publishing becomes, kind of, from my perspective anyway, kind of a dream option, um, assuming that you don't mind the entrepreneurial aspects of that. How important is being able to get access to the entire backlist to, to that process or some of the backlist? It's usually very, very profitable <laughs> to have some kind of rights. Um, certainly your author name or brands can help carry you, um, carry future books and get you the sales you want. But I think as we've seen proven kind of again and again, authors tend to make money, a lot of money when they're able to get those um, backlist rights back and put those editions out in ebook form, print on demand form. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of money that's been made that way. 
Okay. And you mentioned for, for the authors who have a, a ready connection to their readers. That's something that's, that's difficult to achieve in, unless, it's, unless you've started the process a few years ago. So really, mm-hmm. even, if you're the, even if you're the author who's got the big book now, it's a fabulous time to, to get that email list going and, and, or any other way that you can connect with readers because that's, that's the missing piece in the puzzle. So many, the publisher doesn't connect with the readers. The bookstore doesn't really connect mm-hmm. with the readers. Uh, the book, the digital booksellers can and do, um, but, but you don't get that information as an author. So it's, it really is right. critical to get as much of that information as early on as possible for the time that you may, it may be in your best interest to, to self-publish. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's like an investment that you're making in, in your future sales and career growth to be collecting email addresses from your site and to be interacting through all sorts of social media outlets or, or even just one or two. And a lot of authors kind of dismiss the effectiveness of social media mm-hmm. um, because they don't see it pay off in the short term. Um, and, for, and for instance, there's a lot of dissatisfaction now with Facebook because they keep changing how fan pages reach their audience. Mm-hmm. So you find a lot of negativity surrounding these issues, but I think people are kind of missing the bigger picture of how these tools keep you in touch with your readers. I mean, I the book we, we mentioned that I just put out, mm-hmm. Publishing 101, you know, I self-published that it didn't make any sense to traditionally publish a compilation of my previous writing. Mm -hmm. And there's no way I would have gotten the sales I've already enjoyed if it weren't for Facebook and Twitter and my own website. How would I tell people about it? I mean, it would, it would be next to impossible, but that I, I began this process. Like if you can call it part of one process, this, this whole chain of events began in 2008. (laughs) So, You have to really be playing the long game. You can't look at it on on a book-by-book level. You wrote a post. I think it was you. It may have been a guest post. I think it was you, though, um, a few weeks ago on using Google Analytics to track. um, I think at that point it was Facebook posts. But uh, you're obviously a person who tracks the numbers and tracks data. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in looking at... You know, my, my website for the author biz is like six months old. So you can imagine the traffic that that website gets. It's enormous, you know, like the you know, three million page views a day. <laughs> I'm kidding, obviously. But uh, I looked at your, your reports and I'm just like, oh, my God, you had so much traffic to your site. But what really was impressive, you were talking about traffic from social media, but so much of your traffic, because you have so much content, comes from search engines. That's right. And uh, a, a beginning site like mine or, or any author who, who starts a website and, and begins writing content of any type, uh, there aren't going to be a lot of sites linking to you right away. So the, social media is a great way to, to drive traffic. But in a lot of cases, we don't have any idea whether or not it's working. And that's what made this post so great. You, were, you, you really dug down into the, into the details of it. Um, yeah. How was that post received? Um, I think it was received pretty well. There's definitely so many variables, and it's hard to explain what all those variables are. But I think one thing that didn't really get across in that post was the extent to which my situation is very much like the nonfiction author situation. Right. And, and And by that I mean... There's so much content that I can produce because of my specialty, and it's 
And it's very driven um, by people who are searching for those topics online and looking for answers. The same might not necessarily be true of the novelist who's written a thriller. Um, There's just, and we talked about blogging, there's going to be limited traffic you're going to be able to drive just talking about thriller writing, um, your personal thriller writing on your own site. So this is where I think Facebook become, and similar sites become so important. And sometimes you don't quite realize the impact they can have because even though they're not sending traffic to your site and you can't necessarily measure directly what's happening, they could be the number one thing that's producing sales on your work. So for instance, there are lots of ways I benefit from the organic traffic that my site gets, but the, so far the biggest sales spike I've had on my own book has been from a single Facebook post. You're kidding. Really? No, it, it doubled my sales overnight. Wow. And and I'm I have no doubt it's because the people I reach on Facebook are some of the most engaged, dedicated, loyal readers that I have, and people ended up sharing it again and again and again and again. So from that single post, there were like fifty shares of it within the Facebook environment. So even though Facebook wasn't sending my site traffic necessarily, um, it was generating sales. So you always, you always have to look at the different ways these tools kind of play out because it's not, it won't always be site traffic. And it is, it is complicated to track all these things. It, it complicated somewhere between complicated and impossible, I guess I should <laughs> <Right>. say, <laughs> but it, it's easy to count dollars when you, when you pub, we click the publish button on a, or post button and, um, you know, 24 hours later, your sales have doubled, then you know something that you did work. Yes. Yes, Exactly. Now, let's transition for a, a bit into Scratch Magazine. Mm-hmm. I became a subscriber. I, I wasn't even aware of it until maybe seven or eight months ago, and I became a subscriber. Typically, when I read any kind of online publication or any kind of magazine, period, if for a magazine, I'll thumb through it, maybe read one or two articles. The first issue of Scratch Magazine, which is an online magazine um, that I read, I started with the first article, and I finished with the last article in the same night. And I'm just, I was blown away with the quality of the content. And for someone like me, who's deeply interested in the business of being an author, um, that's what it was. And it was fabulous. But it's not just authors, it's freelancers, it's uh, mm-hmm. newspaper writers, it's it's all of this great information from all of these great writers. You co-founded the magazine. I, I'm, I apologize. I don't remember your co-founder's name. But uh, tell us why and, uh, the, and the purpose of Scratch Magazine. Yeah. Um, my partner, Manjula Martin, who's based in San Francisco, uh, she and I became online friends when she started a site called who pays writers? Yes. Which, yeah. So that's more on like the freelance end of things, trying to account for who's paying and who's not, uh-huh. um, specifically with websites more than anything. Um, so, you know, she and I found a common interest in bringing greater transparency and education surrounding the issues of business and payment and making a living. And we didn't want to like address it from like this antiseptic point of view. We wanted to look at it from like the whole universe of concerns that come into play because, you know, if, if you don't make enough money writing that affects life decisions. And so that's why the tagline for the magazine is writing money and life, because all of these things kind of intermesh in a way that's hard to extricate from one another. 
So each issue has a mix of um, both practical information, like how to negotiate contracts or create business agreements, but also like insight into how people make this work on a personal level, um, what kind of compromises they've had to make. And so there's a mix of personal essay and interviews and roundtables that try and answer this question or show you the many different answers to this question to help you figure out what's the right path for you or, or how to do a little bit better in how you balance these, these challenges. You know, writing is a solitary process and it, we're always curious uh, what other people's lives are like. And it's one of the things that I found most interesting in the, in the first two issues that I read. They're just little essays, personal essays uh, uh, about people, how, how they make a living from their writing, you know, with <laughs> nitty gritty details, how long it right. took to do this, how much money they right. made, what a pain in the ass it was to get the <laughs> right. so-and-so to pay them. Right. Uh, things like that. And uh, th- there was a great article um, in this past uh, issue about someone who was doing a book tour and writing about the book tour while they were doing it. And mm-hmm. uh, just fabulous stuff. And you charge the incredible rate of, I think, $20 a year for this. That's right. It's, uh, it is a, it's, it's a wonderful magazine and, and a great use of uh, Twenty dollars. It's a quarterly subscription. I think you can you can buy individual back issues as well, can't you? You can. Yeah. So you can just dip into it uh, if you're not ready to do the whole thing. And where do we go to subscribe to Scratch Magazine? Uh, just go to scratchmag.net. Okay. And one of the things that you talk about at the end of the of the magazine or near the end each month is sort of the business of the magazine, which is mm-hmm. also. Fascinating, because you pay the authors who write the articles. You have subscribers, so you've got income, you've got money going out. Uh, you and your partner, I don't think, are being paid uh, by the process right now or by the project right now. Um, but that's that's really interesting just from a purely business perspective for people who are curious about it. And, and I was uh, eminently <laughs> curious about it. I, I love exactly. reading that. Yeah, yeah, and we call it the transparency index because we think that when writers understand more like how the business of publishing works, it just it it creates smarter writers, better publishers to acknowledge like how these things happen or don't happen as the case might be. <laughs> okay, you also you mentioned Writers Digest earlier. I've seen on your website uh, you still occasionally teach courses through Writers Digest. Right. Very yes. specific topic-oriented courses. Mm-hmm. You have one coming up this year, I know. I do. I'm Every year, I kind of do the uh, the New Year's resolution, I'm going to get published <laughs> course. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's a land a book deal in 2015. That's the first week in January. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be teaching webinars for them probably roughly every month or every other month uh, next year. So the topics are always changing, but I typically focus on the digital media side of things like websites and email newsletters and eBooks and those types of things. How much has your business model changed over the course of the last couple of years as the internet business model evolves? Well, the interesting uh, transparency index of my own story um, <laughs> is that I went full-time freelance over the summer because, you know, part of the interesting uh, uh, the interesting part of my trajectory is that I've always had a full-time job mm-hmm. 
from the time I graduated until just this past summer. And so a lot of the things that you see on my site or all of the aspects of the platform that are visible, those were things that were created while I was working Mm -hmm. um, for someone else, Um, which I think this is kind of a tangent, but for anyone who's in the publishing business or in full-time employment, I think it's, it's really kind of important and critical to be thinking about your online presence in a way that it's not so wrapped up with your employer. I think that's kind Mm -hmm. of dangerous because it can set you uh, (laughs) into kind of a crash and burn situation should that employment end. So you need to be, have some kind of like, um, you need to have some visibility outside of this traditional position that you might have from my humble perspective. So in any case, I mean, up until that point, I kind of just took on work or accepted gigs in a very kind of passive way. Like the opportunities came to me and as time allowed, I accepted them or not. Um, so starting this, this past summer, I've gotten more into an entrepreneurial mode, but I would say the large, the largest segment of my income has always been aside from my full-time jobs, online education. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so far outpaces any kind of like, um, book revenue or magazine writing revenue or freelance writing revenue. I mean, it's just night and day difference. And so I can understand why freelancers say they have a hard time making a go of it. I don't have those kinds of problems because I've, I feel like I've created a lot of different skill sets that I can draw upon that are, are really tied into my desire to, to be an educator. So that I'm in a lucky position in that sense. And you're in a lucky position because you've been doing this uh, online for a long period of time and people know you and trust you and you have this incredible authority so that when you offer a course, people know that it's going to be valuable and, and they want to take the course. Right, exactly. Um, and when, one aspect I've been trying to work on more, and this is where we get into the more kind of... Um, the more traditional online marketing methods of earning income. Uh-huh. I was I was going to ask you about that. Go ahead. So I I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with these sorts of practices, but there are ways to generate affiliate income for yourself. Some people call it passive income, mm-hmm. where you're basically linking to products or sharing um, news about other people's services or events. And if people end up buying, you get some kind of percentage of the fee that they pay or registration or whatever the retail price is. So the most common form of this is the Amazon affiliate program. Like almost every blogger is probably an Amazon affiliate because if anyone clicks on a link on your site that goes to Amazon and they end up making a purchase, then that blogger gets like six or 7% of whatever you paid. Um, and so there are so many different types of affiliate programs and the people who are really, really into the online marketing are trying to build up this passive income because it basically means money is coming into your pocket without Mm -hmm. you having to do a lot of work. Um, but it has to be like, it worries me to a little bit, like you have to still be able to do it in a way that's not deceptive. That doesn't make people feel like you're using them. Um, so I'm kind of like gently walking into that territory. I mean, I've been an Amazon affiliate for many years now. Mm Um, you're right. Start- Every, everyone who has a blog is an Amazon affiliate. <laughs> right, exactly. And if you're not, you're missing out. Yes. So go sign up. In- including um, if you're an author, your own book should have an Amazon right. affiliate link associated totally. with them. Totally. Um, 
so there, you know, I recently started, um, I did a little educational piece on how to self-host your site and Mm -hmm. that includes an affiliate link related to Bluehost. Um, and so if anyone ends up signing up for Bluehost, I get a fee, um, and there are just so many other opportunities that I, I haven't been proactive in looking at, but that's definitely, I think, how a lot of people as online entrepreneurs make this thing work. Well, there are a lot of people, let's, let's at least say there are a few people that are making a lot of money from, from those relationships, and the rest of us look at that and say, yeah, we should be doing that too. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but what, one of the things I appreciate about what you're doing, you're developing courses, uh, you're selling the courses, and there are all these internet, I don't know, kind of uh, just things, marketing techniques that make me a little bit uncomfortable that people use yeah. to market courses, and you don't do any of that. You just, you have a, a little promotional piece at the bottom of your blog post saying, I'm offering this course. If you're interested, sign up here. Right, right. I don't like to be pushy. I mean, I I really want people who are just genuinely interested in taking a class with me. I don't want to like have to beg or plead or or heavily market it in such a way that you you basically are annoyed that I exist. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any plans for uh, developing? Uh, you're developing online courses now, but th- these are real time courses that you're teaching almost l- like you're at a, at a university. Uh, do you have plans mm-hmm. to record them and sell them, thereby generating passive income that way? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a social media course in the spring mm-hmm. that kind of um, is patterned after like a, a more traditional um, university type course, which I'm also teaching at UVA if you're mm-hmm. in the area. <laughs> um, and I'm rec- there's like two registration levels and one's live where you can come to the live events every week, um, uh, like kind of like a webinar style Mm -hmm. and then a recorded version where if you, you can't show up or you don't want to show up to the live events, you can just do the the recorded version of the course. And there'll definitely be opportunities for me at that point to then decide, okay, I've got these recordings. What do I want to do with them? And that actually describes, um, a number of things I've done in the last year where I've got this recorded material, but I haven't really done anything with it. So there's an opportunity there. I don't know if you're familiar with Linda L.Y., NDA. Yes, yes I am. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Linda is like the, the queen of online education <laughs> Yes, and they have all of these recorded uh, on-demand courses. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be able to put together something um, focused for writers. That was kind of an on-demand education. I, I definitely like have taught everything I would want to include in, in such an on-demand program, but I haven't necessarily recorded it all. It's not like prepared in a way that's presentable yet. So that's a lot of work and, but it's kind of like my big picture goal. Well, it's fun for me as someone who is just fascinated with business of all types to watch your business evolve. And I've, I've kind of watched it with the website as, as you've begun to add new things. And it's, it, it's, it's fun. Uh, the way you do it is uh, so cool and it's admirable. And I, I wish you all the best with it. Jane, what's the best way for people to, uh, to keep up with you and your work and everything that you're doing? Um, the best thing is to go to janefriedman.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up for my email newsletter. And that comes out monthly, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that won't be too onerous <laughs> of a commitment. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jane. You've been very generous with your time, and uh, I know we've learned a lot today. Thanks so much, Stephen. 
Thanks for listening to the AuthorBiz podcast at www.theauthorbiz.com. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mentioned, just check out the website. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. Please join us again next week for another informative episode.